Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to... Hang on a second. I'm messing things up here. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to Other Minds and Hands. Uh, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> uh, user error is like my middle name. Anyway, so here we are. Other Session number 52 of Other Minds and Hands. And uh, uh, back with Maggie, who is once more in her home. Uh, which is, I always feel like it's remarkable, you know, like when, <laughs> when, when you're, when you're, it's, when you're, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be utterly mundane to you guys that I'm going to be here for a while. Yeah. I'm not traveling anywhere for a couple months. So, uh, the, the, yeah. the adventures are over for now. Maybe I'll just choose different nooks of my house to do this from. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm down in, down in the ground floor, everyone. Uh, there you go. <laughs> you can explore my house as we go. Merlin is with me tonight, so if you hear something in the background, it's just him chewing a bone. Right, very patiently chewing his bone. Yeah, that's good. And which is better than him being a pain in the bum on the on the screen. So that's I'll take right. the bone. Yeah, but yeah. Exactly. Nice to see you, gang. Sorry we're a little late tonight. We both had some slight issues that delayed yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. We some are here. <laughs> last minute things came up, but here we are. All right. So today we wanted to, uh, there was one topic we wanted to discuss, and then um, we also wanted to kind of look ahead to uh, a thing that we wanted to uh, to do, a project we wanted to kind of start, a little mini project, a little discussion we wanted to have uh, starting next time. But the topic first is to talk about audience, and I'm, I'm really interested Maggie, to hear you talk about this first, because I have to admit, in some ways, I have often found myself resistant to thinking about, and I think part of this is coming from a, uh, coming from a, like a, just a literary standpoint, not really thinking about it from the film side, right? One of the things that I know that I have kind of built up in myself is a kind of resistance to the way in which, in particularly with literature, right? Um, you know, there's been this increasing pressure to try to peg particular audiences. Like, yeah. this book is a good book, but only for, you know, 12-year-old girls, right? And yeah. I'm like, then it's not a good book, is what you're telling me. What I'm getting is that it's not a good book, right? Um, and, uh, I mean, cause, and I think, of course, of the tradition of, you know, the kind of, well, call them battles might be a little grandiose, but the kind of work that um, both C.S. Lewis and... Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien did in like breaking the boundaries between juvenile literature and adult literature. I mean, the whole idea, you know, fantasy, of course, as a genre was considered only for kids um, and is one of the reasons why so many people had a hard time understanding what even to do with The Lord of the Rings. It's, people forget about the fact that a lot of the allegorical readings um, of The Lord of the Rings that, you know, were current when it was first launched are due, were due essentially to the fact that um, uh, we're essentially due to the fact that people were trying to find a way to like excuse it or parse it, right? Like, why should I, as a mature adult, be reading this work of fantasy? If it's like some kind of political allegory, then okay, right? That makes it all right. Just like I might not read, you know animal stories as a grown-up but animal farm is okay because it's allegory it's satire right? Right, right um so like that makes it a grown-up book but if it weren't for the fact that animal farm were an allegory and a satire it wouldn't be a story that would be appropriate for adults to it would be weird to write it and to read it right and, and that's exactly the way that people were reading the war you know we're kind of responding to the lord of the rings because Tolkien was, I mean, it wasn't the first one ever to do this, but it was, it was, a, it was a major moment of kind of breaking those boundaries. Um, and well, I, I have, 
he was definitely one of the first people of like that reputation to write something like this too though you know it's like being an oxford don and and creating something that's in fantasy literature that children enjoyed was just unheard of so he was kind of the first one that they took seriously in the field potentially in some ways yeah and of course the way that he trans like the way that the lord of the rings was a sequel to the hobbit kind of confused things too because the first Mm -hmm. one is was explicitly a children's book right and then he wrote this other thing which is looks like it's the next hobbit except it's not the next hobbit it's clearly for grown-ups and um anyway and of course i've also always totally agreed with like c.s lewis's um you know dictum right that uh, any book that um you know you come back to that you love as a child and you come back to and don't still love it as an like it's not still worth reading as an adult it was probably not a very good book in the first place right like it's and right. i i agree like that's that's you know and certainly that has been my my own experience with me i mean i absolutely love like winnie the pooh brilliant yeah. book, right will be a brilliant book until the day i die and i i will never like i and i reread it occasionally for myself because it's such a brilliant book um so again, so this is why from a literary standpoint, I, 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 I realize that I kind of come to this conversation with a certain amount of resistance to the idea that like you must carefully attune your work of art to, uh, you know, you're, you know, you've got to sculpt it in order to appeal to a particular audience. It's not that I don't see the practicality of that. And I mean, there's a reason why the publishing industry has gone in that direction. Right. Because there's 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 some. But again, as a as like a lit person. I feel resistance to that. So anyway, so having confessed that, <laughs> that sort of I that, love that, that. I mean, you basically just covered the points that I like to discuss when I talk about audience. Because okay. exactly, like, there's so many pitfalls. And the reason I, I bring audience into this is, like, for all those reasons. A lot of people, especially in the industry, are like, you need to have it. You need to have it. You need to have it. What's what's your demographic? Who are you pitching to? Where's this going right. to sit on the shelf? What's the cover going to look like? They're all thinking marketing. Um, obviously, creators tend to struggle with that because they're working on a story. So finding you know the middle of those. So a lot of this the stuff that I've done recently with training filmmakers and things is about finding your audience and about how to be aware of what the people with the money that will actually make your script, you know, what they're looking for. So you can cater your conversation to satisfy them without compromising your own kind of creative process. But exactly all the stuff you've been saying, there's so many issues with why this doesn't work the way that everybody in marketing really clearly wants it to work. And categorization generally like didn't even happen until really Tolkien's time. Like they just didn't really split anything up besides nonfiction and fiction. And then it wasn't until J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter that the Times even came out with a best-selling children's list because mm. she was dominating the main list. <laughs> and they were tired of having a kid's book dominating. They wanted to, they wanted to create a, a place to sequester it. right? Uh-huh. They yeah. wanted to sh- shepherd that out. Uh-huh. Um, and it was also really famous in the UK. There's multiple covers now for Harry Potter. You can buy all the collector's editions, same with Lord of the Rings and stuff. But when they first came out, there were adult covers in the UK because God forbid you'd be embarrassed for reading a children's book on a train. They mm-hmm. would make a very simple photographic black and white cover for you to read so you wouldn't be embarrassed. Like there were all these like things that were kind of putting a certain skew towards YA lit. And I think people still kind of sneer a little bit at YA lit, which is ridiculous because it's so dominating and financially mm-hmm. it's a huge return with an industry. But 
I do think it's a really interesting conversation because as we're talking so much about the creative process versus industry practice, you can't ignore audience in this process. Mm -hmm. So like Mm -hmm. whether you're a creator or a producer, like it's just being aware of that audience and who they might be, how you're going to target them, what you're going to do. And if you're the creator, how to kind of be able to pitch that. And I think that's really interesting in our discussion because we're talking about so many things that are upcoming too. The stuff in the past, I think it'd be neat for us to do a little analysis on and be like, hmm, who do you think the demographic was here? Who do you think the target was here? But there's so many new adaptations coming and so many different platforms and a whole new audience of Lord of the Rings that, you know, there's the originals, you know, the Mm -hmm. the old OGs that that came out in the the 50s and 60s. Then there's the Jackson era. Then there's... 25 years on we're now getting rings of power and all the things that are going to come out we have so many different generations tapping into this it's it's just real interesting mm-hmm. I mean, if it's helpful i do have an image that i used in this this class um that i gave to a bunch of filmmakers a couple weeks ago let me see if i can share my screen oh no you've disabled me oh sorry i can i can i can figure that out here Purely to just talk you through like some of the the breakdowns of audiences, because I find it pretty fascinating to try to like use this language as a creator to people who are not creators and for creators to use that language when I'm in the other seat. Um, And it just kind of helps understand some of this. So some of you may have seen this if you've been in my classes, just because it's a a unique image. And yes, it's about Twilight. Suck it up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so if, if you're new to this field, uh, this is what I did my case study work on for my PhD. So Twilight's a really interesting one to look at, though, when you're talking about audience, because sure. it's a really clear example of what these four audience demographics are. So when you're talking about audience in terms of marketing, and if I were a producer, I would want to know what these things are. So I was basically telling my my filmmakers in the classroom of like, here's the four things that you should be aware of with your own project. Who are you after? There's your mm-hmm. core, your niche, your secondary, and your tertiary. So core audience for Twilight is teenage girls, right? Like these are the people that are freaking out and obsessed with Bella and Edward and changing their hair color and buying the jean jacket and trying to like embody the Bella <laughs> and everything. Right. Also weirdly, Twilight seems to be having this crazy resurgence. My Instagram account is just, like my feed is just filled with Twilight. So I don't know if it's now like trendy to parody it because it sure seems like it so it just doesn't die um core audience target obvious folks teen girls niche audience this is the people that have specialized entry so something that would make them uniquely interested in your story in your adaptation um but not necessarily a huge fan of the original work so for twilight this could be people who are vampire fans they love vampire literature they love Dracula, they love Stoker, they love all the the classics and every reiteration that has come. So they're going to come see this thing purely to make fun of it or to be knowledgeable when they throw it under a bus or to (laughs) fall in love with it. You never know. Right. Um, But it's a way to access them. So you would you would appeal to that audience as well. By the way, that 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 was my entry into Twilight was vampire fan. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, I, I I love I love Dracula, and so I you know, and I've been interested in the way that Dracula, uh, in particular, and vampires in general, have been um, sort of developed in film over the last mm-hmm. you know fifty years, and so when Twilight was so huge, 
I was like, on the one hand, I'm not sure I really want to read this, but on the other hand, like, you know, all, everybody's reading this new vampire thing. So let's, let's compare and contrast. Let's, let's see. Right. And like, it, that's kind of the right attitude of like, it's part of the body of work. I guess I'll just engage with it and we'll see. And you know, that's why I read Aragon and I didn't like it. That's fine. You know, right. it's, it was right. text adjacent to the fantasy lit I like. Great. Now I can knowledgeably say, well, here's why I didn't like it. But anyway, <laughs> exactly. exactly. I digress. Uh, yeah, so you got your specialized entry. Secondary audience are attached to the core. So those are the people that are going to get into it because they have to or have been forced <laughs> right. to. Or... So this is like the category of people who are going to be dragged to the film is what you're saying? Exactly. And some of them <laughs> okay. end up turning into fans. You never right. know, you know, and they're and the so best friend. They're this... rolling their eyes, but then right. they're the ones who right. buy the tickets the next time or whatever. This would be so... true of like parents with kids programs as well. Right. Bluey. I'm obsessed. <laughs> I will buy all the Bluey gear now because it's the most brilliant children's cartoon I've ever seen in my life. And right. I'll die on that. Um, right. So yeah, so for so for Twilight, this is an example was moms and boyfriends. So yeah. moms, like, with Twilight, there is a, a fan site, there is a fan site called twilightmoms.com um, and it's one of the biggest fan sites for the Twilight fandom and they showed up to set more than any other fandom. They got escorted off a few times. They were very pushy with their obsession and love of twilight <laughs> so mm -hmm. they're a whole core they're a whole core audience themselves the moms but then there's the ones that were brought along by their kids to come see this same with boyfriends um and boyfriends is really interesting the first trailer that was released for twilight um actually only showed the fight scenes and the vampiric elements so the chases the battles the bites the fights the fire the fists not the teenage drama love. They already knew the core audience was going to come. So they're trying to go after those boyfriends. They're trying to say, hey, we know you're going to be forced to come mm -hmm. see this movie on a Friday night. Don't worry. There's vampires and fighting in it. Don't resist it. <laughs> Super gendered. But hey, ho, this is, you know, how right. it works for them. Right. And then tertiary is the peripheral attachment. So some kind of attachment that your audience would have to your core story. And for Twilight, this was Mormons. It was talked about a lot within the Mormon communities, within the Mormon churches. There was a huge support from Mormon churches to support this other Mormon member because the author is Mormon. Um, there was kind of this expectation to monetarily support her work and hmm. say, she is a figurehead, we should lift this up. Hmm. So there was hmm. almost like a pressure within some right. of these communities to participate in the Twilight right. phenomenon. So these are four, and again, these are just examples. You can see this with anyone. So, I mean, we could do this with Lord of the Rings. We could do this with any text out right. there and find right. out who these four areas are. But this is the kind of stuff where you can start to see a lot of the gray. Like you might say, yeah, Twilight is a young adult teenage book for 14 to 17 year old girls. It should sit on this part of the shelf. Great, tick. But we could rebrand the cover. We could put this on. We could do this. We could push it here. We could have this person talking about it on late night TV, as opposed to this person talking about it on daytime TV. Hunger Games was really famous for that. For mm. nighttime TV, they had Jennifer Lawrence and I can't remember the actor's name, the guy that played PETA and um, all, the, all the kids on the nighttime talk shows, throwing footballs and doing pranks and being silly, but also talking about the film. Hi. Um, <laughs> And then in the morning shows, they had Donald Sutherland, who played President Snow, talking about how this was the most important role he had ever read in his life and how he felt that he had to take this on as a political responsibility. I mean, think about the audiences right. watching that, you know, like right. at night, 
you're getting the young kids saying, oh, fun, I want to go see this cool fantasy thing. And in the morning, you're getting the grownups that are getting ready for work saying, wow, this sounds like a really important piece of film that I should go investigate. Right. In the same 12-hour span, you just targeted both audiences and are telling the same story with the same book. So these are all marketing kinds of things. But I think it's really interesting when we start talking about the adaptations we care about and like, how are we going to take this stuff forward with the adaptations that are coming and consider the audiences that we have? Because we do have this multi-generational audience, but now we also have an audience that has like a lot of different definitions of what Lord of the Rings is. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got the pure text people. We've got the Peter Jackson people. We've got the folks that are watching Rings of Power and thinking it's canon. And, mm-hmm. you know, we talked last week about the problem with canon or last time about the problem with canon. Yeah. 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 I just no, thought it'd be a good one for us to dig into a little bit. It is interesting. So I'm thinking about. Um... Okay, actually, wait, I have a quick question. Quick question about your circles. Um, which I just closed. So I hope you don't need just to see them. It's okay. okay. The the question was: so you had the 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 niche was represented by the little blue circles, right? Yeah. And you had some in a bunch, most of them in the center, and then some in sort of the outer ring as well. Is that like overlap of? I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to understand exactly what the circles were representing. Well, now I'm gonna have to open it again. Uh, It's okay. Sorry. (laughs) I think it was just different ways to capture it, but we'll dig in. There we go. And we'll share screen again. Okay. Okay. So, so, uh, so again, there's, there's the set of the blue circles in the center, and then, then there are those four blue circles around the side. I'm just trying to understand. Uh, like, see the four little blue circles, like between. Oh, the, the red niche and green. ones. Yes, the yeah. niche ones are in the core and also just outside the core. So they're like attached to the core, I suppose. So they're not really. I guess circles is kind of a rough way to envision this, isn't it? Because it doesn't necessarily work that way. A niche can fit anywhere. You could be you could be a tiny circle in any of those circles and still be a niche person. Right, but like the idea would be that the idea that it, so the impression I'm getting here is that you're suggesting that the niche audience it's not separate. This is not exactly a Venn diagram, of course. It's not like all right. vampire fans are, are teenage girls, right? Um, right. But again, like, what this is modeling is not potential, but like actual viewers, right? So that the people who will be at the heart, like the people most certain to go see this film, will be teenage girls and like diehard vampire fans. Like those, sort of? I mean, I guess you could read it that way. I don't think I. No. I don't know if I would say that necessarily or not, but I suppose that that makes sense. Like, yeah, I, they are the the target, so they are in the center. But I also wouldn't say that the tertiary is the biggest group, which is what this circle kind yeah, of. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's not designed to represent it in that way. That's why I was thinking about the this as sort of like distance from the center rather than uh, like size or uh, no, again obviously not venn diagrams to say that all teenage girls are mormons yeah. <laughs> for instance I think, that, I think that's a good way to look at it because yeah the core is gonna come but this makes it look like the niche is more likely than the core to come and i think the core is the core right the like core the core is, the core, is, right. is either coming right. yeah. but, but there's definitely some overlap there right again where yeah. i would think that with some people like 
you know, there are a lot of people who just who love vampire movies and will pretty much go see any vampire movie that comes out. And you got to think that somebody like that, somebody who is like that close to the heart of the of the niche audience is like at least as likely as, you know, your average teenage girl to come and see this film. Right. So yeah. anyway. OK, so so let's 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 do what you were suggesting. Let's let's apply this to. Um, let's take in order to be neutral and not get caught up in any um, of the like stuff about any previous adaptation. Let's think about a future adaptation, right? Let's think about the War of the Rohirrim. Okay. Right. How would we model the audience in the in these in these terms? So, like, who well, would be? What so, do we know so far about War of the Rohirrim? That's probably so easier to start from. The, the, the War of the Rohirrim we know is going to be a, so it's a feature film. It is a story from the Third Age before, you know, it's a story of Helm Hammerhand, um, though with a frame, uh, like a Fourth Age frame, like Eowyn is going to be narrating. So it'd be like mommy Eowyn telling stories to her kids. Um, so it will there will be a connection to the Lord of the Rings world and characters that right. are known from the Lord of the Rings. Um, but it's telling a story of, you know, the history of the world of the Lord of the Rings. Um and the history of a part that lots of people loved, you know, a major story from the history of Rohan. Right. So, um, but it's also animated, animated um, and animated by a Japanese animation studio. So that's another element, an important element of the film to keep in mind. So with those things in mind, what would we say would be the core audience? So would, would Tolkien fans be the niche? And there could potentially be multiple niche audiences, right? There's, yeah, I mean, anime is the first one that comes to mind when you're thinking about this, because all of a sudden we're targeting something different. Like Rings of Power, our core is still Tolkien fans, right? Like they're really focusing, called us the core community. Like you can't really get more on the nose than that. Um, But they worked very hard to kind of keep it in the same visionary style as Peter Jackson with the same concept art, the same, you know, shooting New Zealand, same ideas of that world. Right, right. Switching it to anime is a really unique switch. So all of a sudden you're going to appeal to this group of fans that maybe haven't been that interested in Lord of the Rings before. But I think your core is always going to be Lord of the Rings, especially if you're telling an untold story of something that we're already somewhat familiar with. It feels like fan fiction, but it's not. You know, you get that that satisfaction of hearing the story that you love, but yeah. it's canon, so you get to, like, approve loving it if you're a canon fan. Right. So I I guess one of the things conceptually that I'm still trying to figure out like how to apply, because I'm I'm, one of the things that I found most fascinating about the way you were talking about audience just there is kind of thinking through the distinctions between those different categories. In particular, um, first, I'm starting with niche and core. Right. Um, And in your Twilight example, teenage girls were the core, whereas like vampire fans were the niche. that would seem to me, therefore, to say that the core of, and again, in some ways, because of the anime element, that's a little bit of a confounding variable in some ways compared to just like a new live action Tolkien adaptation film. Um, but, um, but even sort of trying to factor that in, it seems to me that parallel to the like teenage girls are the core audience of the Twilight film, um, the core audience of a Lord of the Rings adaptation would be like fantasy fans, right? Maybe, but sort we've of? got a longer life. God, right. he's a lot tonight. We've got a longer life with uh, Lord of the Rings that 
Twilight was coming in hot new, you know? So right. if if you were following it, it's because you were a teenage girl and you were already on the bandwagon. Right. Um, I also think there's not a single answer to most of these circle okay. diagrams. So if I'm the one making it and I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, I might put myself at the core. But if I'm the one making it and I'm an anime fan, I might put myself at the core. Right. You know, it's yeah, like when people no, are drafting those maps and put their nation at the center of the map. Right, right. Yeah. No, I guess again, it's what I'm trying to figure is conceptually, and the reason I'm I'm so interested in this is it's it it is reminding me of so many conversations that we were involved in and that we heard happening before the Rings of Power came out. Right, mm -hmm. the question of, um, I mean, I remember hearing the Prime Video marketing people talking about like Tolkien fans and general audiences right mm -hmm. and it the impression i got was that they were treating tolkien fans that they, they we, we were the niche audience we were like the the twilight parallel of the vampire movie buffs right right um but there was a, a broader feel. yeah like they were they were trying to appeal to like people who like you know any kind of like fantasy stuff you know so like the 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 category that includes like Star Wars fans and Lord of the Rings, you know, Lord of the Rings film fans and also like Marvel fans and like anybody who likes like fantasy ish yeah. action films uh, or whatever, you know, like would also be attracted. Like that seemed to be my, the vague sense I was getting of what they identified as the core with again, it's not that it was neglecting Tolkien fans, but they were treated as the niche where and not treated as the core. Yeah, if I'm understanding would, the distinction between those terms. Yeah, correct, I think I would correctly. agree with that. But I also think that just shows that they're very aware of the four audience points because everyone that's making a big budget anything should be appealing to the broad, wide, huge audience and how to attract them because yeah. that's your job, right? Like right. you want everyone right. to come see your film and spend a lot of money. So it's it's going to be their responsibility to be aware of all four. We also have to keep in mind they were talking to us. Like, yeah. they're going to skew it a little bit to make us feel important. <laughs> sure. Like, and even if it is just ego stroking, that's fine. I do think there's a time and a place for ego stroking because it's, you're going to keep them happy. And, you know, why would you burn that bridge with somebody that could come talk about how great your show's going to be and how great you are as a creator? And mm -hmm. you wouldn't want to mess mm -hmm. that up. But, I think appealing to us also made sense because of the work they put into it. And they, they weren't just flippantly saying, we love you guys. We love Tolkien. They were showing us that they love yeah. Tolkien and they know Tolkien. Yeah. So they were appealing to a really broad audience while satisfying the really niche audience. And that's tough because Twilight Twilight did that very well. You give me a diamond studded sparkly vampire who's a vegan we're all gonna have a few issues with that unless you <laughs> explain that you know yes yeah yes yes um yeah um yes and this is again this is one of the things that is well again I, this is, i'm sorry this is me, i was trying to avoid getting into specific rings of power issues but but of course i mean obviously i'm thinking about it because it was so recent this question of audience and it's and, handy for us to talk about this because we all have this yeah. kind of shared experience with this so. yeah and okay so there can obviously be multiple niche niche audiences right um uh in the same way that like 
you know, uh, reach, you know, films like, um, you know, like this Spartan movie, it's 600, right? Um, 300. 300. That was the one. Wrong, wrong number. Yeah. Some Almost number right. in the hundreds, right? Um, Only yeah, half anyway, good. that, that the 300 film, um, you know, would have like again multiple niche audiences, right? It would appeal yep. to like action movie people, but it would that uh, also has an appeal for like historical. You know, people are interested yep. in history, right? And um, are interested to see like let's see how they depict ancient Sparta and the Battle of Thermopylae, right? So, um, but also it would appeal to like tech film fans because that was one of the first films to film the three sixty. So you had that slow motion action shots so like yeah. just in terms of how something is filmed you would have like diehard cinematic snobs going to watch that yeah. too yeah yeah exactly um yeah so i mean there's 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 yeah so i'm not i'm not trying to limit things and trying to like just rigidly apply the i'm i just what i'm doing is i'm trying to talk through I feel that the the categories that you are introducing there are really interesting and seem to me really a really useful way to think about this. And I'm trying to like wrap my brain around like making sure I'm I I, live, I would like apply the 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 audiences directly. So, who would be potential secondary and tertiary audiences for a uh, like for a Tolkien adaptation? Let's do, let's go. Let's just go ahead and go with the Rings of Power. Like, who do we think sure. is a like a secondary and, and tertiary audiences there? So core, if we're saying core is Tolkien, I would say secondary is fantasy, right? So you would okay. be targeting those people that are also fans of Game of Thrones and uh, Wheel of Time and all that kind of stuff. Especially because it's an Amazon thing, they might cross market. And if you're watching Wheel of Time, they might put a trailer for Rings of Power at the front of it and, mm -hmm. and stuff mm -hmm. like that to try to bring them in. So I would say fantasy generally, and there's different ways to cut trailers too, that you could very easily put together a rings of power trailer that looks, believe it or not, star Wars esque, right? You know, right. like you can pull on certain themes to just appeal to that, that demographic and that kind right. of vibe. Um, stranger things did a lot of this by pulling on, uh, eighties horror and, Goonies and all you know, all these nostalgia things that just kind of smacked of that era to appeal because Stranger Things isn't really something I would have gotten into, but all of a sudden they were hitting on my like love of Eldritch and love of of creepy yeah. things, Goonies. Yeah, I'm in and good <laughs> music. I showed up. Right. Yeah. So fun. anyway, right. so that would probably be my my stab at secondary. So um. Yeah, Alan was just asking about the the um, in, intended audience versus actual audience. Um, yeah. And how often does it happen that the intended audience by the filmmakers ends up being different on release? Because um, see, I like that question. That could be is, fun. It is an mm. interesting question. So, what, one of the things that you were just talking about that I. So, Oh, some a lot of this it seems to me, questions of audience and appeal and things like that, really come down to the relationship between marketing and the creative filmmaking team, right? Um, I mean, you've got the uh, because there does seem to be to be a fundamental difference 
in audiences there. What you were just saying about trailers is a perfect, and you were suggesting the same thing back when you were giving the Twilight illustration, right? Um, with the for boyfriends trailers, right? Um, the way that trail you can you can make the movie look totally different um, with how you cut a trailer. Um, It the movie's still the same movie at the end of the day, right? I mean, you can you can make it look like a a, you you could totally do a trailer. In fact, this would be a really fun exercise, wouldn't it? To be like do a cut a trailer of the of you know the Lord of the Rings that makes it look like a romantic comedy. <laughs> yeah, it's a classic <laughs> you know? homework assignment to do that, you know. And yes. and I'm sure you guys have seen the memes going around about how music makes all the difference and it's yes. Voldemort, you know, churning into his form with the uh, Barry White song in the background. <laughs> and it's like right little different yeah (laughs) right right exactly and i mean obviously there's like rich potential for comedy in such things but like but you could really earnestly you know do it to make but obviously again at the end of the day the film is the same film right like it doesn't it doesn't actually change the thing so what kind of impact it has how it how well it reaches particular audiences or how well people who have been prepped in a particular way respond to it um and so this is where i see in, in this way in a sense the audience of uh, or uh, the work of the marketing people yeah. is in a sense quite independent of the work of the creative people right? and that's They're- often where yeah and that's often where so much of this issue I'm, I'm making it an issue we haven't talked about it as, as an issue yet but like i do think that's where so much issue can come from in terms of audience reception and longevity of a project because if these two departments don't talk to each other and understand each other while talking to the same audience, we have a problem. So we have the creators who mm-hmm. care so much about lore and detail and thought and understand the four audiences and they're working that into the script. And then we have marketing who are after the hits and the punch and the hit, you know, the the getting the, the snippet. And that's great. There is a space for that. It works in traditional marketing, but if you have communication between both of those teams, then you tend to get a much more sophisticated, I think, mm-hmm. rich, uh, much more depth to your reach. So it's not just a hit. It's a hit right. and sustain. Right. Um, and and making sure you are able to do that. So yeah, that like marketing department and production departments are so separate. And yes. that doesn't make sense to me. Because you're talking about how to communicate a story. And if you're going to communicate a story, and you're putting twice the budget of your film into the marketing of that film. Right. And they're not talking to each other. You're probably not telling the same story. I think that's really important that you tell the same story. Right. Right. Yeah. So thinking about it from the creative only standpoint for a moment. Um, that is thinking about this in the process of doing adaptation itself, right? What are some of the ways in which this impacts the process? Like, so like, again, to, not that I want to linger, because I don't, I don't know them well enough. I don't want to linger on the Twilight example over long, because I can't contribute too much to that. But, um, but not just thinking about what's the reaction to this film going to be as a film, right? But, when we're making a film, right, um, based when we're adapting Twilight for film, how does our sense of audience um, 
appro- uh, either appropriately or inappropriately impact the kinds of decisions that we make, right. you know, adaptation decisions that we make. I could talk about that for like a year. So I'll, I'll see how <laughs> I can sum that up. Uh, that's like asking you what the Lord of the Rings is about, Corey. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, but I, and I, and I don't have a clear answer. It's not like I can lecture on it knowledgeably right. forever because I have the answer. It's more like, no, it's so nuanced. It's really tough. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it's a really cool exercise because when you're saying, let's adapt this, who's it for? Who's putting the money behind it? What's the motivation? Who's directing? How much budget do we have? Where is it going to go? Which studio house is it in? All of these things help define what story you're telling and how you're, you're telling it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I've said this before, but like the original script of Twilight was... Um, uh, I forget what the, I think it was called Twilight, but Edward was not a vampire. Uh, he was just a human and he was on the run from the FBI. And Bella was a track star at Brigham Young University. Right. No, I mean, that's not, that sounds interesting, but it's not the story. Right. Um, and I know I've told it with Dark is Rising and stuff, but like, yeah. you know, there's different, there's different drafts of this. And that's when it was with MTV films. So like it, it depends who's making it and how that audience is skewing it and what they think is going to be a better story. Or I remember working with a producer and it was a story about a kid with cancer who dies at the end and, oh no, who oh. lives at the end. Oh, and she wanted the end. to make yeah, him die. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, do, I, I think we talked about, we talked about um, Christmas Probably. Carol. Yeah, and we were talking about yeah. the essence of the story. Yeah, yeah. Why would you do that? You That's know, amazing, so, yeah. Right. So like depend, there's so many factors that can change those kinds of decisions. Like, you know, so the producer has all the money, then they get a lot of say. If you have a big name director and doesn't like this thing, I guess that has more clout. If the studio comes in golden compass and says, we're scared of the Catholic church, you have to cut 44 minutes of your finished film. That's going to make some massive changes to your adaptation. Yes. Even if the director, you know, has a degree in literature from Cambridge and is really well respected for understanding right. story, whatever. Right. Throw it out the window. So there's so many factors. Like, so having a story that we love, that filmmakers love, that everybody understands, that people go to see, that has, you know, stands the the test of time. It's so rare, right? Like, it's just all these things have to come together carefully. But it's really fun to think about in terms of like, this is why I like adaptation too, because if you don't like that one, just wait, another one will come. Right. So like right. if I watch the Little Women adaptations from 1940s on or whatever the first one was, I kind of love all of them. Some of them are real terrible, but I love them for what they tried and yeah. wait for yeah. the next one. Of course, I have a favorite, but there's favorite parts and other ones that didn't make it in that one. And Right. Or Austin adaptation, same way. Yeah. 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 Um, it is it, it is fun, I think, having um, – and this, this is one of the reasons why I'm – Jane Austen adaptations as a genre <laughs> are the thing that I draw most encouragement from as a Tolkien fan. Right. Hmm, like, like that. the idea of more and more Tolkien adaptations coming, like I would actually quite look forward to the day when Tolkien is like Jane Austen in this, yeah. like in, in the sense that like every few years, somebody's going to do a new Pride and Prejudice film. Like it's going to And eventually happen. somebody's going to have a Pride and Prejudice and zombies. We're going to have like War gonna, of the Road here yeah. and then unicorns. Sure. I, hey, I'm 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 ready. I'm ready. Um, yeah. You know, like it's it's I I, I and and again, it's, it's not to say, of course, as you say, it's not to say that all of them are good, you know, and it's certainly not to say that you know Jane Austen fans love every one of them, but it feels to me it's just very different. Like the the 
the, yeah. the whole experience has become very different. Like you, you don't. Well, it's like our conversation yeah. with Star Wars too. You know the what's the name of the the series, the shorts series. Uh, Visions. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that concept too of like we're all telling yeah. a Star Wars story, but what does that mean? And they're all so different. And yeah, I would love to see that for Lord of the Rings. Like, yeah, wouldn't it's interesting. I... Actually, just got to see Tom Bombadil's garden. Right. Yeah. Cool. Just like again, we get to you know. Um, you know, you can have the, uh, you know, the the Colin Firth BBC Pride and Prejudice, and you can have Bridget Jones. Okay, like you know, there's lots they of work. ways to engage with the story, to engage with the text, and you know that are interesting to think about, and and you know, yeah. So and um, the like meta conversation there of having the same guy play playing Darcy. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Exactly. The other Colin Firth, uh, Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and the number of people that talk about the Muppet Lord of the Rings. I know, right? Like, I I still think there should be a Muppet Pride and Prejudice, too. Like, I was just talking about this with my friend Fiona, who's a huge Muppet fan. And she was like, 100%, except Darcy and uh, Lizzie need to be humans. So everybody else is Muppets, but these are humans. I was like, oh, I quite like that. Interesting. Okay, so... So we were casting it. We're like, Kermit is I immediately get to the casting question, right? So my burning question is, whom do you cast as as Wickham? Ooh, we didn't get that far. Miss Piggy was um, mom. Mrs. Bennett? Bennett. (laughs) Okay. Can't you just see the curls bouncing in (laughs) adaptation? Okay. Who would be Wickham? Who would be Wickham? Um, I can't think of a massively handsome Muppet. No, me neither. I but like, who would be funny? Maybe it's just a w- chef. Cause... Without being, or, or, or Scooter is my vote. Oh, that would be, that would be Scooter. <laughs> Scooter is or... Mr. Wickham. Or Rolf just sweeps you off your feet Rolf, with Rolf, music, but doesn't okay. have anything behind the music. I can see, I can see Rolf. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, see, you can see how this is yeah. super fun. Like, yeah, and I love totally. signing this as like little exercises with classes and stuff. Like, quick, go recast this. Let Let's talk about what yeah. makes characters work. Yeah. 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 No, but it's it's so, the guy I mean, who plays fish. That's great. <laughs> one of the. Um, uh, <laughs> I remember him. Uh, okay, so the um, one of the things that I just I want to like draw attention to because you didn't you didn't say this ex- like out loud, but it was implicit in everything that you said about when you were talking about the choices that they make based on the audience and all these other factors and stuff. Um, the factor that you did not list as any kind of like normative force upon that question is like need to stay true to the book. Right. Like that, <laughs> that was, that, that didn't factor into any of the things that you were talking about as again, as illustrated by things like, you know, that, that original twilight concept or the, um, uh, the dark is rising, you know, like that, that, that it's not, it's not a big priority there. Like, so, and, oh, and, and it, it, that, that itself it, seems to be revelatory of the like, kind of, attitude toward and I, I think honestly one of the biggest gaps between like how fans view adaptation and how filmmakers view adaptation you know that like the again I think of all the times oh man the thousands of times uh, in during and leading up to and since the rings of power when people kept saying they can't do that 
right yeah, yeah. and i'm like it, it doesn't okay but let's also just say these are massive generalizations saying like yeah, yeah, filmmakers yeah. don't care like well yeah of course they do no, but and not one of the factors of that they could decide they could you know like, as you said like some different people have different weight you know yeah, and, decisions. and you're gonna and, have yeah. and you're gonna have different directors that want different things like we have so many Romeo and Juliet's, right? Like, and then you've got Baz Luhrmann that comes along saying, no, I want to make a close adaptation, but let's put in cars and guns. Like that is right. actually a close adaptation because they use every single word of, of Shakespeare's work, Yeah. but modernized it. So it's still a close adaptation. It's still incredibly true to the story, right? I mean, every single thing is there, except a lot of the couple stuff that makes it a little different. So yeah. like, it depends whose hands it's in. And, you know, right. we've seen that with, narnia we've seen that with dark is rising like depending on who has it and who sells it and who takes it on and which director eventually does it adaptation might not be reliant upon staying true to the text but for some directors that's exactly what they want to do is to honor the text it's the thing that brought their heart you yeah, know absolutely but peter jackson says that but he wasn't scared to make changes so like Significant you can one. yeah you can 100 percent still honor the text and care about it and make changes but how you communicate that to the people that think that's not allowed is very important too yes yes exactly <laughs> it's a minefield of fun <laughs> exactly gay Bren says do a baron and luthien adaptation set in 1970s harlem <laughs> Ooh. okay <laughs> came on yeah came on indeed uh, that's a that's a fascinating assignment right there um yeah yeah um uh yeah so no it's it's it is really interesting to think about and of course and the way and so coming back to audience for uh for a moment the way that and of course again this is something that was very present with us in the rings of power experience um was the sort of when at least the perception is the, like what is the relationship between the general uh, like the the the, the general audience the, the core and the niche right between the general audience and the tolkien fans um and um and i'm thinking also back to um alan's question about intended audience and actual audience right um it's funny because i felt that the push that we were getting from the marketing people all the way along was like, we're on the one hand, they were catering to our Tolkien fandom. Like they wanted to like show that it had Tolkien street cred. Right. But what we kept hearing and getting was like, we're trying to appeal to general audiences. And so we were prepared for a show, which was going to like, what I almost was coming to expect before we actually saw it was, on the one hand, yes, they are like committed to Tolkien and they know their Tolkien stuff really well, but the show that they're making, Tolkien fans isn't the like exclusive number Not one audience. For Corey, yeah, yeah, they they didn't make it for me, um, and then in the end, I think they ended up making it only for me. Um, right, I mean like the actual audience was like it did they didn't appeal to the general audiences as well um and in the in the end i think you know they kind of uh, you know lost the bulk of both audiences uh really yeah. in the way that it came out but i still my analysis of rings of power season one um is not that there was too little tolkien is that there was too much uh you know that there was there there yeah. was 
a lot of the things that they were again it's what it's what i'm constantly finding you know is that yeah yeah i think it's a really tough balance too and and i I don't have an answer because we weren't in the room where it happened but like so many things depend on how many cooks are in the kitchen and what's said at certain times and what the priorities are in that moment um you know and and nameless arcanum your question there like when do you ignore the audience sometimes fans are very entitled a hundred percent like there's so many different factors here of like who are you trying to please and if i was working one-on-one with a script writer and and going through an adaptation like this i would say knock it off ignore all of that and just write a dang good story you know you shouldn't matter who you're writing it for Mm -hmm. after you finished then you start asking who is this for and how are we going to talk to them about it because i'm going to have a different conversation with my parents when i steal their car and i'm 16 versus my friends the next day in school when i've stolen my parents car and i'm 16 you know like (laughs) depending on your audience that story is going to be told differently right and knowing and that doesn't mean one's a lie and one's not it's just how you you pitch that so you can totally tell the story that you want as a creator and ignore the fans. Great. Please do. I encourage you to do so. But if you ignore who's going to watch your film after you've written it, that's just not a smart move business-wise because you're right. not you're not advertising anyone. You don't write something and then stick it in a box and say, oh, I hope people love it. You write it and you put it out there. So if you're going to put it out there, try to steer the conversation a little bit, right? So like... Yeah. I don't know if that answered it, but it's very much about like making sure at the core of everything, you just have a good story. And well, and that's that's what I always come back to with adaptation. Yeah. And this this really <laughs> sort of indirectly helps to solidify that that, you know, that same core idea. Right. Um, it's and it can work. Uh, I mean, again, to use an example I've cited so many times. How to Train Your How to Train Your Dragon is a great movie. It's right. such a weird adaptation. Like it's it's they just they took that wonderful, brilliant, hilarious book, um, and they took that story and those characters in a totally in that world in a completely different direction. There's so few connections other than the names of people uh, between the film and the book, but it's a great movie like it was it was good i liked it i liked it and i liked the book and i you know never the twain shall meet but (laughs) and that's allowed too yeah like that's allowed um, too yeah true blood i like the books and i like the show they're very different you know Mm -hmm. just speaking of vampire stuff and i was just talking to somebody the other day about this in terms of franchises too because if your franchise is successful then you have a lot more flexibility the farther along you get I know I've talked about this with Harry Potter. The first two were like painfully true to the text to the point that they weren't very good films. They weren't super yes. entertaining, but then then they knew they had an audience. So with the third one, they could play around a little bit more. And I was just watching Pitch Perfect three, which I hadn't seen in forever. Same dang thing, man. Like Pitch Perfect, they had a good concept that worked really well for the first one, and then it had this massive following. It became cult following. It became big on college campuses. The second one took off, did really well. By the time they got to the third one, just reading the script, they must have just been like, we can do anything we want. So John Lithgow is a baddie who, like, is trying to visit his estranged daughter, Fat Amy, who has a secret bank account, and they end up on a yacht, and she, like, kickbucks, fights everybody to (laughs) save her friends who have been kidnapped, acquire 
I mean, literally, they were just like, we can do whatever we want. Jump the shark. Let's go. <laughs> it was fun and it made a lot of money. So like, you know, if you know you have an audience, you have a little bit more freedom to do those things. But if you don't, you should be a little bit more careful. Right. But at the core of all of this, it's still a good story. It's ridiculous by the third pitch perfect, but it still makes sense and it's still fun. Yeah, yeah it's 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 such a fascinating question because I mean it's in some ways it's it's a factor in books as well, but in films it's just a more obvious factor. That is this kind of tug of war between creative and marketing, right? Mm -hmm. That like you, um, it is in fact impossible to create a great work of art and get it out there and have it consumed by people without having any appeal for that, right? Without you know you that many is a an excellent work that has not found its audience right i mean that's that that happens anyway it's so it's it's um it's, it's, interesting. it's interesting and to think about and nameless hurricane doing the work and selling the work should be separate processes yes but i think the more you know about both processes the better it gets like the first script you write is never going to be as good as the 20th script right you just your craft gets better so if if you as a creator or a producer or a studio are aware of the process on both sides, you might be a little bit better at your marketing because you're taking into account that. So you might start working with your story team before it even gets to a script because you're feeding into that super, super early and making sure everybody's kind of having the same conversations. And I was just talking to a producer who works on a TV drama and she was like, the day that I don't have a script writer on set is the day I've quit this business. Like so many people only allow writers up to the point of shooting. Mm. They're not, there are not writers on set because they've done their job. The script is there, but to not have that person be involved in the actual shooting. And well, that's not how that line was supposed to be delivered because this is dependent right. on that. And nobody knows the story better than that script writer. So right. not having them on set is a real risk. So there's so many factors to it, right? So just being aware of the process, I think, can make the whole thing better. Yeah. And that's the part that there seems to be a big old disconnect sometimes. And I think mm -hmm. we weren't there, but I, I would have, I could see how that would happen with Rings of Power. There were so many writers and it was shot in such a broad way and they were interrupted by COVID. Like maybe it was just sort of a piecemeal thing that made some of these things feel a little disjointed, but I don't know. It yeah. didn't feel as clear as it could have. I imagine season five is going to be sharp as anything because they'll have learned a whole lot. Yeah. Hope yeah. it. I hope so. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Yeah. Hey, so we uh, only have a few minutes left. So let's talk about the uh, what we're planning to do next time. And I want to make sure that I, I'm, I'm under, I, I'm because there are a couple different ways I could see approaching this. I don't um, have it clearly yet, so let's talk through it. All you right, guys well, let's figure it out. So the uh, the idea was to do uh, to to, to kind of zoom in and do a close in study um, of a particular moment. So we were thinking here of the 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 very beginnings. So looking at the Lord of the Rings, looking at the opening of the first Peter Jackson film and the opening of the book. Yep. And let's let's just go in and do some direct comparison and contrast. Try to understand both, look at both the relationship between the two of them, but also like what are the choices being made? What are the, what are the things that are happening? You know how how is the you know like the the whole you know same and different being juggled and stuff? But here's here's sort of my question because um, 
on the one hand, so I can already anticipate um, there are going to be some there are some there are some major differences. But I want to be careful not to create apparent differences where real differences don't exist, right? So that is when, um, uh, in particular, so so like for for instance, um, it would be silly. Um, this isn't exactly the situation, but it's a little close to it. It would be a little bit silly to compare the opening scenes of a book and a film when the film has just chosen to do a completely different opening scene, right? Yeah. Like, you can't exactly go point by point through that comparison. It's not going to be very sensible, right? There, the larger question is, like, so why this scene instead of that scene? Like, why did they choose to, you know, to, to, to yeah. lead in with that or start that way? Um, and, um, uh, but, um, but yeah, so thinking about, thinking about openings as a really interesting way of framing this, like, let's do some close comparison. Um, so would we want to, there, there, again, there are a couple ways I could see approaching it. Um, one is simply comparing the openings in the sense of saying like, so like, what are we, how are we being set Introduced. up? Yeah. yeah. Like what exactly are they, are they, is the, their first priority is to introduce what in the book yeah. compared to what are they introducing in the, in the film? And how are those things different? Because there might be the fact that so, for instance, the things they introduce in the film may be different, but that doesn't mean that the things that they're choosing to introduce in the film aren't also closely drawn from the book. So we could, we could kind of digress from there to say like, okay, having seen the things that they're doing in the film, now let's compare it to when Tolkien does those thing introduces us to those things in the book, even if it's yeah. not in the opening page, right? Um, I feel like there's two ways we can go and this could take us a whole year, which sounds fun, but openings I think is a neat way for us to start just talking around these topics and seeing what tangents we go off on because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's interesting. But then I could see picking a really specific thing that we know is almost a one-to-one -one from the text and seeing the, the yes. small variations. So we've done kind of this broad general tangential ooh, ooh, googly, yeah. googly. And then we start to zero in on certain scenes that people would like us to tear apart or we can choose our favorites or whatever. Yeah, because the stuff that I'm, the kinds of differences that I'm talking, that I'm anticipating, right, between the two openings, um, I think would actually prevent doing that kind of close comparison. Like, let's take a place where the film and, you know, where irrespective of where in the process it falls, right? A place where they're doing the same scene and do a, mm -hmm. a close comparison of those two, of the text and of the end of the scene. Um, and, and they could be... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. But the, op the question about openings is a really, really interesting one. I mean, that's a fascinating little case study that really helps to establish... Yeah. The, all the points we've been making about what what story you're telling, right? Uh, you know, whom are you appealing to? What what are you what are you? Because those opening the openings are so important, right? Like, what, what are you telegraphing they, to people from the very beginning? Right. Like, what do they think is the core information yes. we need yes. to know? Yes. But also, not just we need to know so we understand what's happening, but also what do they think is the most important thing for us to grab onto to keep us. You know, if you're just going to sit there and start listing names at me, Game of Thrones, like reading, 
I lose interest kind of quick. But if you're going to show me those families fighting it out and, you know, mm-hmm. death and drama and jealousy and everything else, then it's a little bit more hook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like M. Beckdorf um, on Twitch. I feel there's an intrinsic difference you'll find in most adaptations. Openings have to elicit an emotional response. Yeah. You know, like, what is it that they're trying to hook us with? but also inform us about. Yeah. In the end, the more we talk about this, the more I feel like the two things are really different projects, right? Mm -hmm. Let's look at openings as a way to begin to look at larger patterns of how film openings work compared to how book openings work, right? And that that could be a really interesting way to Mm -hmm. sort of isolate a particular way of talking about because we, we often just kind of wave our hands and say there are things that are easy to do in in a book that are hard to do in film and vice versa, right? So when you're, you know, we talk about it, you know, a, a, the significance of adapting the media, you know, from one medium to another, that would be one really interesting way of, of, of really trying to get at concrete examples of that and mm-hmm. concrete illustrations of exactly those things. Uh, we I think we could begin to see some patterns there and it'd be fun actually to do that to do a series there, right? Let's talk about the Fellowship of the Ring openings. Let's talk about the Dune openings. Let's talk mm. about Pride and Prejudice openings, right? Let's, let's, especially since the first sentence of Pride and Prejudice is one of the most famous opening sentences in literature, right? So oh, um, that puts a lot of pressure on Pride and Prejudice, and everybody knows that, right? So yeah. um, so that puts a lot of pressure on on film openings, opening sequences, you know, in Pride and Prejudice adaptations. Um, uh, so yeah. And I mean, there, there are others that, 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 that we could do. I'm thinking of some of those because those could be sort of case studies we can return to and that we've talked to and talked about doing Mm -hmm. and coming back to. Um, so by doing that, we could begin to see, I think perhaps some trends. We could even look at multiple versions. Like we could look at the Rankin Bass opening for Fellowship of the Ring and the Peter mm-hmm. Jackson opening and the book mm-hmm. opening. And we could look at multiple Pride and Prejudice ones. We could look at the David Lynch Dune and the new Dune and the book, you know, and, and, and see. Hey, this how... is going to take us for the next year. <laughs> well, yeah, well, uh, we, we could probably well, do it, but. I kind of like the idea of like a little series of openings. Let's just, yeah. should we just do that for a little bit yeah, and see how it goes. Open it. so it's a case study, not in the sense of like a particular film or a particular story, but of a particular no. element, right? Yes. As a, a way to isolate common issues, right? Yep. That cut across like, you know, because different films are going to take different approaches, right? Not all films, for instance, begin with a, Star Destroyer going across the screen, I hear, right? Um, but some films opt to do that, <laughs> right? So anyway, like not not all films open the same way. Not all books open the same way. But um, yeah. but in, in looking at pairings, um, film book pairings like that, that'd be interesting. Okay, so let's start right. with that. Then we can come back to perhaps as another, as a different exercise. Um, uh, let's take... And the interesting exercise, I think, would not be to compare and contrast different scenes. So, like, for instance, a bad example, I mean, it's interesting in a different way, perhaps, um, would be like the prancing pony scenes. 
um, like Frodo and his companions in the common room of the Prancing Pony as it's depicted in the book versus how it's depicted in the film, right? Um, in one sense, that, that that's sort of a classic illustration of them having taken the story in different ways and what are the consequences of those decisions. But even more interesting, actually, are the ones where people would say they did that scene perfectly. It's just like the oh. book. And to look at those really carefully um, mm -hmm. uh, and to, to look at some illustrations there. Uh, so I think, um, uh, yeah, I mean, as I say, that, that scene could, because that, that again, one of the points of that is it would help to isolate what the book is doing and how it is doing it and what the film yeah. is doing and how it is doing it, even when they're actively clearly explicitly trying to do the same thing even the same using thing. the same lines right and again that's where it turns into an interesting conversation about like well yeah but this is a modern audience or this is a big budget or this is from that studio or this was on location like it's it's fun to kind of consider all the different variables that make these things so different while telling the same story yeah yeah um uh yeah yeah okay all right so Let's so do next the week, are we, are we just doing openings of fellowship? Yeah. What homework do I need to do is okay. what I'm at. All right. Homework for next time then. Let's start with Fellowship of the Ring because that's All like right. home ground, right? Yep. Um, but let's let, let's include Bakshi. Okay. Let's do let's This way, again, it's not just a Peter Jackson's vision because what we want to get at is not the, idiosyncras the idiosyncratic choices that particular... Um, authors or particular um, filmmakers are making, we're wanting to look at bigger picture patterns, right? Mm -hmm. And some of the different things at stake and how different authors and different filmmakers approach those things and what kind of trends we can see, how we can provide some more, some clearer examples and some more intuitive understanding of what we mean when we say this works well in books, this works well um, uh this works well uh, in films. Um, mm -hmm. So, and I think, at least to begin, I would like to start, because we need to, we need to set some um, controls, Balance. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's start with good openings of books, like books with good openings. Okay. Pride and Prejudice, obvious example. <laughs> right. So we'll definitely include Pride and Prejudice. I would include The Fellowship of the Ring. I think the, the, the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring is very successful, I think. Um, Dune, I'm a little plus minus on. I like the beginning of Dune. I think it works very well. I don't know that I would put it in the category of, like, classically. And again, the reason I say this is, is, is if we want to be talking about what works well in books and what works, uh, you know, and does it like, to, I, I would want to have a sort of a, like, a starting yeah, like point kind of, of like... Yeah, and I kind of hesitate on going with well, just because it's so subjective. It is. But it is. It's 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 let's, obviously let's a more flawed with, paradigm yeah. from the start. Let's go more with the analysis side of things. It just isn't it interesting to look at these two. Okay. Things. All right. We won't try to. We won't try to. We try to maintain this. Okay. So let's we'll do, probably let's get play. an opinion as we go. But if we start right. with the goal of just discussing around. So let's yeah. plan to start with those three. Are, are there any others we'd want to throw in? So we'll do Fellowship, we'll do Dune, and we'll do... I mean, if, if you want to do Dune, but that occurs like, to me. Like, you might have to lead on Dune. It's been a couple of years since I've read right. it, but... I can, I, can, I, can, know I it. can lead on Dune. And then we'll do we'll do Pride and Prejudice. Um, okay. uh, we can decide on exactly which films and stuff when we assign homework for the next time. 
Uh, so okay. this time it'll be it'll be the opening of the Bakshi, the opening of the Peter Jackson Fellowship yep. of the Ring. Um, opening of the text. Do we we want extended or theatrical? Do we need to define there? I think I we mean, do because yeah, go extended. Go extended. Okay, we'll go extended. Um, how much? When we say opening, when are we ending? Um, I would say first scene if you were reading the script, but be aware what the second scene is because I think it's important what the first scene leads into. Mm -hmm. Okay. Juxtapositions is is very telling of what you're putting A next to B because they're usually really jarringly different. You know, you right. have a battle followed by a shire. It's, yeah, I think that would be interesting. Right. So, yeah, Phil is asking the really interesting question that makes actually the Fellowship of the Ring a complicated data point. <laughs> because the extended edition begins with explicitly, like the text is on the screen concerning uh -huh. hobbits, right? Uh -huh. um, so it's dealing with the prologue as well as the opening of chapter one. And the prologue needs to be discussed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe we don't answer that question. We're talking openings. Um. Yeah. You need to hmm. know. I mean, I'm thinking script. First we could. We could. Because that, that, that is a complexity. Like, which opening are we talking about? Um, we could simplify it by doing The Hobbit instead. Yeah. First Peter Jackson Hobbit film, Rankin-Bass Hobbit, and, and certainly In a Hole in the Ground There Lived a Hobbit is another one of the iconic a lovely openings line. Yeah. In, 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 uh, in literature. So, um, Why don't we start with Hobbit? We let's might start with Hobbit. We, we might drift we, into we, comparison we might, with Fellowship. We might still do the... But yeah, let's, let's start with Hobbit, both because it's yeah. simple and because it comes first, at least in book terms, not in film terms. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's start with The Hobbit. And we'll do, we'll do, we'll do, the, we'll do the three, Rankin Bass yep. Hobbit. We'll do a Peter Jackson Hobbit Jackson. film, the first Hobbit film opening, mm -hmm. um, and the book. And um, at the book, it'd be before Gandalf's arrival. Like we're talking about the like I would consider the 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 opening scene ends when Gandalf shows up, um, because there's there's all that there's all that stuff yeah. from the narrator. In advance. Yeah, and then um, let's save Pride and Prejudice and Dune for round two. So we'll start with just yeah. Hobbit, but potentially we might reference Fellowship a little bit, and then we'll yeah. move into whatever we naturally feel like needs to happen next. Yeah, maybe we'll do one session on Hobbit, one session on the Fellowship of the Ring, and then um, yeah, uh, and then we can move on to others. So yeah, so we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna try to discuss all these films and books in one shot. We'll do we'll do a session on each of them uh, to yeah. really get a chance to dig in. Okay, so Hobbit first. Hobbit first, and then Fellowship after. So, I think it's pretty amazing though that we made it to episode fifty-two without actually doing an adaptation analysis, right? Like, is this going to be our <laughs> well, first? Well, this one? kind of a close comparison, yeah. Well, it's yeah. a lot of groundwork to be laid, and of course, there were a lot of other, you know, yeah. topical moments to uh, yeah. to to hit upon there too. So, um, okay, um, yeah, okay. great, excellent. So, um. Uh, so so great. Rankin Bass Hobbit opening. Uh, so get the start with the book opening, right? So that you, we know the parameters. Um, yep. Once Gandalf shows up, it's over. Hey. Right. That's the second scene. Um, yep. So so uh, up to but not including the conversation between Gandalf and Bilbo. 
is the is 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 what we're talking about there so okay good be aware what that conversation entails but we will not be i'm not saying you can't either read or watch those scenes (laughs) we're going to try to limit our analysis on but but that's what we're going to focus on the focus of the discussion will be on literally the openings how they approach the discussion um, we try totally totally i don't think that it's inappropriate to use the word focus about our discussions um uh okay awesome Excellent. So that's what we'll do next time. This will be we'll, this will be the beginning of a fun series of openings as again, as as a, as an exercise in finding um, some of these really specific things to really kind of dig into. And I can't think of a Thursday for the foreseeable that I'm not around. So we might actually be somewhat regular for a bit. Good. Yeah, I think so. Oh. My I don't think I have any Thursday impeding travel for the one thing I will say just and I didn't even get a chance to tell you this, that because I just learned myself about this earlier today. Um, I have a family situation by which I mean after school issues with my son, which might possibly make me have to change days and times. I, I will see that's still well, being adjusted. So, Well, to be perfectly honest, that would work. I have a Thursday night yoga class that I always skid from to get to this. So if we change for a different night, Right. We'll we see. We'll see. Wednesday, we're still so. trying to resolve uh, that. There's a new thing in my son's schedule that we're trying to figure out exactly where it's going to slide. So. Life, guys. That's how we roll. But exactly. next Thursday, we'll be here talking Hobbit. Okay. Yay. Very cool. Very good. good. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye now. <laughs>